0: Thank you for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. Due to an equipment malfunction, this week's episode isn't to our usual high standard. Despite this, we decided that because Chris was such a fantastic guest with an incredible array of stories, we wanted to go ahead with the recording. Remember to listen, enjoy and share. Welcome to another fascinating invested investor podcast. On this week's show, we're excited to have Chris Mayers CBE. Chris is a founder and former chief technical officer of MetaSwitch Networks, a private UK based company that designs, develops, manufactures, and markets telecommunications software. He has since transitioned to become a hugely prominent early stage investor here in the UK, an advisor and mentor. We're currently sat in Entrepreneur First office in London because Chris is a venture partner here. Chris, you've got a hugely exciting background. How did you find yourself founding your first company?
1: Thanks, Alan, and thank you for inviting me.
0: So I actually have a background
1: in technology. I did a degree in computer science at Cambridge when it was only... A one-year course, because there wasn't enough material for three years, which makes you realise quite how ancient I am. And then I worked for IBM for a little while, and the founders of the business which became Metaswitch Network were all working for IBM. So it was through that group of people that, and slightly unusually, it was seven co-founders, so that's an unusually large co-founding team. And that was what took me away from IBM.
0: Oh, wow, that is quite a large founding team. Then Did everyone have a C-level role when you started? <laughs>
1: <laughs> like chief office manager, yeah. <laughs> chief, chief code developer. Yeah. yeah, that's right. No, it was, I mean, it was in the early days, it was quite a flat structure, um, obviously, with that many people. But over time, everyone sort of settled into their own hierarchy.
0: Okay. So, what did you learn from those early years of growing the business and what's kind of helped you into your investment life these days?
1: I think the thing that became most obvious most quickly is that hiring quality people is A, extremely difficult, and B, extremely crucial to building a successful business. Ultimately, in the early days of a startup, it's the people that make all the difference. You you don't have any product, you don't have any customers, and it's the ability, creativity, and integrity of the people in the organization, not just the founders, that allows you to build a strong base.
0: Have you got any best or worst hires that you can talk about and really why those were kind of good and why they're bad? Just give future entrepreneurs an understanding of how to do it, really.
1: In the early early days, we tried hiring raw graduates without any experience in industry. We also tried hiring people from industry. And one of the conclusions which I sort of still hold to be true is that people from industry who are looking for a job at the price that you can afford to pay when you're a startup and may well not be the strongest people in the sector. You know, If you're Series A funded and you can afford to poach people from DeepMind, that's great. But in the early days, you probably can't afford that. So what we did, having had some bad experiences of recruiting from industry, was to actually focus very much on taking people straight out of university. To the extent that we even recruited people as developers who had never written a line of code. In the early days, we recruited pure mathematicians, we recruited philosophers, classicists, and we taught them how to actually do software engineering. And while that was a big investment of our resource upfront, I think it paid off in terms of a, a very able and very loyal team. Probably I mean, one of the earliest guys who worked for me, a guy called Nigel Ratcliffe, who then went on later to set up his own business joined straight out of university at the age of 22 and it was immediately obvious that I explained something to him he just got it and went to it and did it quicker than I could do it <laughs> when you realize that the person that you've recruited is better at doing the job than you are then you think that was a good decision.
0: So obviously that might have been a one-off but how quickly do you usually realize the person fits into the business?
1: Usually I can tell within the first two months I would say and it's interesting that At interview, everything seems to be really great. And then one week in, two weeks in, you start thinking, hmm, maybe this person isn't quite the right cultural fit or maybe their ability to actually be creative isn't what I previously hoped.
0: Yeah, you must have learned a lot of lessons. Too Too many. Too many to talk about in such a short amount of time. You grew the business over a number of years As you were growing it, what were the kind of pains that you and the other founders felt?
1: There always was. And I think there still is in that business now, which is, what, 37 years, 38 years old now. There is still a tension between not having enough revenue and having too many customers placing too many demands on the business. So always you're worrying about the revenue on the one hand. But on the other hand, you're worrying about all the different product features that your customers are crying out for. And I think that's pretty true of any startup. You're on this fine line, haven't got enough customers, oh God, got too many customers. And you never seem quite able to get that balance right. So it's a bit of a roller coaster.
0: Do you find that a lot with early stage businesses then, that they commit to too many customers but don't have the resources to back up that?
1: I think what I see pretty often is that there is a desert until they find product market fit, then... Hopefully, eventually, they find product market fit and suddenly they've got not necessarily a huge number of customers, but they've got several customers and they haven't put in place the processes for customer support, account management, bug fixing, you know, new releases and all the other stuff that becomes pretty essential pretty quickly once you've got a real live customer base.
0: Yeah. Did you personally ever have an exit strategy when you set up the company? I presume you look for that now when you invest.
1: I don't really look for exit strategy, actually, because okay. my view is that if you build a business, the exit will come. And I always say that to founders. You know, what does good look like for this business in seven years' time, nine years' time? And if they start talking about exits, then for me, that's a bit of a red flag Because I would far sooner that they're talking about the size of the organisation, the impact it will have, the global recognition. And if they're doing that, then someone is going to be very interested in acquiring a business. And if they're not, then you're going to get to an IPO eventually. So for Metaswitch, when we started it, the idea of technology businesses getting built quickly and acquired quickly wasn't really something that we contemplated. We already assumed that the natural exit would be an IPO at some time in the future, but I mean we did have various approaches from various businesses who wanted to acquire us, and in fact we turned them down because we just did not feel that we'd yet reached the potential
0: for the business. And what about your own exit strategy?
1: My exit from the business. Ah, um, well, I spent almost all my career at Metaswitch, so I don't think I had one. (laughs) (laughs) I did retire in 96, actually, because I'm actually blind. And at the time, my sight was deteriorating quite fast, and I wanted to spend some time traveling and doing other things other than working while I still had a little bit of sight left. So I retired at the end of 96. I was fortunately in a position where we'd restructure the business to be Owned by an employee benefit trust, which we did partly to get a bit of liquidity for the founders. Primarily, the real driver was that if all the employees had a stake in the profits from the business, but also ultimately in any liquidity event for the business, then we felt that would be a great way to keep people engaged for the long term. So I had some liquidity from that event. So I was able to retire in the end of 96. Then I came back to work in 2003 and then stepped back again at the end of 2011.
0: And you stepped back to become an investor? Was that the transition? or um,
1: It's what has happened. I think to say <laughs> <laughs> that was why I did it would be uh, giving me credit with a little bit too much foresight. I did decide that what I would like to do is do a little bit of angel investing. And the history to this was that at the time I'd been living out in Palo Alto and we had taken some substantial secondary investment a few years previously from Sequoia Capital and Francisco Partners. And one of the reasons why I'd been living out in Palo Alto was that Sequoia encouraged us to put some engineers out into the valley to mix with their portfolio and drink the Kool-Aid, understand how things are done in the valley. And I was lucky enough to be the responsible adult looking after a bunch (laughs) of young engineers playing a startup in Palo Alto. And from that, I got the... Taste again for being in a small business because by then Metaswitch was reasonably mature and reasonably large. So when I came back to London, I figured that doing a little bit of angel investing in the scene, particularly around Shoreditch, which was now getting very active, would be fun. And it's gone from being fun to being a sort of full time occupation.
0: Do you remember your first investment?
1: I do. It was a company called, now called Utopia, which used to be called Move Guides. And I was in a very small syndicate run by an amazing lady, Maria Drumley taylor and several of us put in pretty small checks into that business, into the seed round of that business. And I think they've now, I think they did their Series E round most recently. Uh So, you know, it's taken a substantial amount of capital and it's hopefully eventually going to be a reasonably good exit.
0: So that's obviously still going. Very Uh, very much so. Okay, let's talk a bit about your portfolio then. Firstly, how many businesses have you invested in?
1: As of last weekend, I
0: think 92. 92, wow. So let's start with what type of business do you invest in? Usually do you have a criteria or?
1: My criteria fundamentally is about people. I said that earlier with regard to recruitment, but even more so for founders. So obviously they need to be doing something which is potentially large in an interesting market and there needs to be some defensibility, some argument why the business might be defensible so you know the two key questions are always why now and why you and if they can't answer the first question then that's a red flag but if they can answer that first question then it's very much about why are these people the right people to do this and um, always looking for some sort of edge usually a combination of technical insight and domain knowledge but ultimately, Do they have that set of characteristics that it's hard to define, but quite easy to spot, which would make them into a resilient and impressive entrepreneur? The personal exceptionalism that is required to be a CEO. So that's what I'm always looking for. And I learned that from the partner at Sequoia, who's on our board, it's Jim Getz. And I was talking to Jim after they'd invested in MetaSwitch, asked him why it was that they'd actually chosen to invest in MetaSwitch. And he said, well, there are three things we look for in a business. The first is the people. The second is the company needs to be relatively young with um, lots of opportunity for growth. And the third is we need to be able to cycle from Menlo Park to the head office of the business. <laughs> so taking those in reverse order. You clearly cannot cycle from Menlo Park to Enfield, <laughs> North London. So you failed on that one. Your business is 25 years old, so you failed on the second criteria. So all I can say is your people must be pretty exceptional, which is a very long way around of saying it's the people, stupid. And that's always stuck with me.
0: So do you follow that in terms of the location here in London? Not necessarily cycling, but do you have a geographic location? The majority
1: of my investments are in London. I have some investments in Cambridge, some in the southwest of England. I live down in Bath, but the vast majority in London and a small handful in the US.
0: Okay. So you touched on syndicates and your first investment within a small syndicate. Do you always invest in a syndicate or through Entrepreneur First? How does it work?
1: So over time, I suppose, as I've got to know a larger network of investors, my deal flow has become less of an issue. You know, I, I now have more deal flow than I can deal with. In the early days, um, I very consciously joined a syndicate in order to actually get access to early deals. Now, the vast majority of my investments actually are businesses that I've mentored during the Entrepreneur First Programme. Then it comes to their seed round. If I like what they're doing, I will put in an angel check as well. Do you
0: have any advice for entrepreneurs that think they should go for funding or are about to go for their first funding round?
1: I think one of the things that it's important to do is understand the dynamics of venture capital investing. And the importance of the power law for portfolio construction and the fact that certainly institutional VCs are always looking for a business that will return their entire fund. And that means that some businesses, whilst they might be very, very good for you as an entrepreneur, aren't necessarily going to work for a venture capital investor. I think the same is true to some extent for angels. There are some angels who are less concerned about the real outliers but certainly when i'm doing angel investing i'm always looking for big businesses that will potentially return 10x 20x 30x my investment so if you are going to go for venture investing then think big make sure you have a vision for the business that goes way beyond your initial go-to-market
0: do you mean that also thinking big about maximizing the amount of money that you can get
1: I didn't, but generally speaking, I think that is true. I always say to people, if there is money on the table, then you should take it, because you never know what macro factors might happen in the next couple of years that are going to be entirely outside your control. And also, almost invariably, things are going to take longer than you thought they would. So having a buffer, having a war chest, if you can get it, is worth the extra dilution that it might
0: entail. So with that, how do you feel about crowdfunding and when companies manage to overcommit or oversubscribe on crowdfunding?
1: I'm not generally a great fan of crowdfunding. There are some businesses for which it is entirely appropriate and extremely valuable, uh, particularly consumer-facing businesses. You can get a very strong cohort of evangelists and supporters for your mission But it's quite a hard way to raise a relatively small amount of money. Sure, if you get oversubscribed, then take the money, provided that you were careful enough to set your valuation before you actually set out on the mission to raise the money. So one of the things that I always advise entrepreneurs to do when engaging with investors at the early stages, don't talk about your valuation. Talk about the business and the amount of money you're going to raise. And because it might be that you detect appetite in the market, which means you can raise more than you initially thought about. It's a bizarre but true rule of thumb that the amount of dilution you take is pretty independent of the amount of money you raise, provided that you don't set your valuation too early.
0: Yeah, that's an absolutely fantastic piece of advice. You've touched quickly on some challenges that entrepreneurs face. What challenges do you think there are for investors?
1: I think patience is always challenging. If you're running an institution, institutional fund, then you're driven very often by the 10-year life cycle of the fund. So it's always difficult for institutional investors to be as patient as perhaps you might like them to be. For angel investors, I think you have to start out from the perspective that businesses are going to take longer to mature than they first said they would. So I always take any revenue projections with a huge pinch of salt. If you're investing early then any business plan can be written on the back of an envelope, fag packet whatever yeah. you like, and it's pretty meaningless. So don't describe too much value to the revenue projections. Don't get psyched out if the revenue projections don't materialize, if you still believe in the business. But you should be thinking about at an early stage, where is the next tranche of money going to come from? And you know, what are the KPIs for the next round? And that's always what I'm thinking about is what's this business going to look like when it's trying to raise its Series A round? And that, for me, is more important than you know will it have X amount of revenue? Sure, revenue might be one of the KPIs, but there are plenty of other KPIs that might be sufficient to raise the next round of funding.
0: Let's move on to some successes and failures. And we'll start with some successes. If you can talk about specific companies, that'd be great, but if not, that's fine. And we just want to hear a little bit about why they became successful, and then we'll go on to some failures and why they failed and kind of what you've learned from that.
1: So successes. I mean, I have to start with Magic Pony because it was a pretty amazing journey. So Magic Pony Technology was one of the entrepreneur-first teams from Cohort 3. I was their bench partner from day one, and then when they finished the EF programme, they asked me to join the board as chairman of Magic Pony. And that business went from zero to an exit to Twitter in 18 months' time for a reported $150 million. So that is an IRR that I will never see in any <laughs> of a company in my portfolio. You know, if you're completely brutal, you might say, well, they sold out early. You know, To that extent, maybe it wasn't a great success. I'm hoping that there will be several businesses in my portfolio that will reach substantially higher valuations to get to that point in that period of time was pretty amazing. They never had a dollar of revenue when they were sold. They didn't actually have a product. They were still a technology business. They had some very smart technology, and they built a team of very impressive PhD and postdoc engineers and scientists. So there was just a particular point in time where they had some video processing technology, which was interesting to multiple people, multiple big tech companies. And They chose, after much consideration, to take the money at that point and join Twitter, which I think has been great for the founders. So definitely success. I mean, there are several other companies in my portfolio who have got to a much more mature stage. Tractable, which was the same cohort as Magic Pony, using machine learning for image recognition in car insurance accident claims, is the application of the technology that they chose and that business has now raised a Series B and will, in due course, I'm sure, raise a Series C and will become a very substantial business. That was successful because the founders and the CEO in particular, Alex Dalyak, absolutely ruthless in finding a sector, learning about sector, having known nothing at all about insurance before he started this business, finding a very specific business application for a small piece of technology, and then building the relationships and getting to the point where he can now do seven-figure contracts with insurance companies.
0: Wow. What about some failures and why they failed and what you've learned from it? I suppose the two reasons that you hear most
1: frequently for why startups fail is failing to find product market fit or running out of cash. You know, and running out of cash is ultimately pretty much why, why most startups fail, but often they run out of cash because they fail to find product market fit. So that is, the I would say, the single biggest challenge is you know, people say, well, it's a long sales cycle, it's a difficult market. What they really mean is we haven't found someone who has sufficient hair on fire problem to actually sign a cheque for the amount of money that we need. And that's because they haven't actually really, truly demonstrated product market fit. And often the reason is that they haven't spent enough time working with Customers. They haven't managed to get the customers engaged enough. The customers will work with them to actually find the real shape of this product that will be super valuable to the customers. The one reason which I find quite often, which isn't cited there, is internal stuff, either between co-founders or between the founding team and the employees. So a failure to build a really strong, coherent culture where everybody is pursuing The same vision. And that is a fairly uncomfortable way for a business to ultimately fail, but I've seen it happen several
0: times. How do you think that if people do have different ideas of where it's going, what's the best way to deal with that as an investor or as an advisor?
1: Well, what I always say to the founders is that ultimately, this has to come from you. It can't come from me. I can talk to you either as individuals or as a group about the sort of things that from the outside seem to be causing the friction and the tension. But ultimately, you have to be transparent, you have to have integrity as a team, and you have to have a set of values that you all genuinely subscribe to. And that's not just people sitting in meetings and saying, yeah, that sounds reasonable, because they can't quite face the, the difficulty, the challenges of the fierce conversation. It's much more about being able to have the challenging conversations but in a way that not too much gets spilled in emotion. So just bear in mind, we're all in this for the same ultimate reason. So let's talk about where the challenges are and see if we can find common ground.
0: Do you feel that entrepreneurs anticipate the personal sacrifice that running a business entails? Do you think they really understand the losses or the gains as well and the ups and downs that come with it?
1: Some, but not all, do. One of my roles as an early stage investor is to make sure that, A, I'm comfortable that the founders realise the challenges that they're going to face over the next five, ten years. And also that, from my perspective, they appear to have the resilience to cope with those. And if they're not set up for the journey, then my strong advice to them is maybe being an entrepreneur isn't right for you. Maybe you should try a different career and come back to entrepreneurship
0: later. So you've seen quite a few businesses exit now, like Magic Pony. What does that feel like for the entrepreneurs and you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me, it's a bit nerve-wracking. For the entrepreneurs, it's brutal. If you think that running a business is difficult, you just want to try selling a business. It's typically a process that is going to take somewhere three months if it runs smoothly, maybe longer than that. And at points during that process, you will be completely exhausted You'll be frustrated by the amount of due diligence. There will be things that come up that hit you from left field that can become existential to the deal that you have to work through. And if you don't have the energy and creativity to be working 16, 18 hours a day for a prolonged period, seven days a week, you're probably going to find that sale process doesn't go as well as you'd hoped it would. And bear in mind that half of all M&A transactions approximately end up not concluding, even when you thought you'd got a term sheet. So you've got to be willing to really go the extra mile during the sale.
0: We had an entrepreneur now investor, Sharon Dagan, on the show quite a while ago that talked about how she spent about a year planning for exit. Do you think that's a wise thing to do for a business?
1: If an entrepreneur is overly focused on their exit, then I worry that they are not going to be focused enough on building the successful business that will have the good exit. So I think on the other hand, you know, being able to plan for the exit is super important. If you get the right plan in place and you run a process where you get multiple people interested in buying the business, you will get a better price. There's nothing like market tension to drive the price of an acquisition.
0: So that leads on, well, to talk about a huge challenge that you had. You cycled across America. What were your motives for the trip and what was it like?
1: <laughs> on what planet did that make any sense <laughs> whatsoever? So my motive for doing the trip originally was that I had previously ridden from Land's End to John O'Groats across the UK, thousand miles in 10 days, and I'd done that to raise money for fight for sight Um, know, obviously being blind, I tend to be quite focused on charities that will help mitigate or cure preventable sight loss conditions. And then in 2017, it was my 60th birthday, and I wanted to do something to prove to myself that I was still, in some sense, moderately uh, physically in good shape. So I decided that if I rode 60 miles a day, 60 consecutive days and I could call that my 60 by 60 at 60 and I like sort of numerical symmetry so I mean that sounds like a really bad idea as, as a reason for riding across America but that's where I started from and I looked for a route that was 3,600 miles and I discovered that the Pacific coast in Oregon to the Atlantic coast in New Hampshire was 3,653 miles so that is close enough <laughs> and I had also been looking at The most common cause of sight loss, um, which is entirely preventable, is cataracts. And amazingly, in the developing world, you can provide eye surgery to solve cataracts and restore sight for $40. Amazing. So I figured if I could raise $40 per mile, then I would be able to restore 3,600 people's sight. And that felt to me like A, achievable, but B, at least slightly meaningful thing
0: to do. And did you manage that? yes we did
1: we raised a bit more than that actually we raised enough to cure about four and a half thousand people with sight loss i think
0: wow that is absolutely incredible have you got another one coming up for the 60th 65th
1: (laughs) 70th well i figured that probably my wife was fantastically tolerant of this madcap expedition so i figured that probably i need to wait until i'm at least 70 before i raise the next uh, opportunity
0: maybe we'll see you rowing across the atlantic back again (laughs) so let's just finish on what does the future hold are you going to continue angel investing not going to set up another company are you
1: no i think no plans to set up a company i think that angel investing working with young founders is what gets me out of bed in the morning i love working with smart ambitious people applying technology that i didn't realize existed to a problem that i'd never heard of and so that i find absolutely fascinating and if i can still continue to provide some value. I'm certainly hope to be doing that for the next few years.
0: Oh, thank you Chris. Thank you. It's been hugely enjoyable to hear your story and all the best for the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website investedinvestor.com or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content from The Invested Investor.